And we are going to turn to uh, the Word of God here. Uh, we are going to fi- we are find ourselves in Ruth chapter 1 this morning. And so, as if you have a Bible, you can turn there, uh, book of Ruth. Um, but before we, we, we come to the Word here, let's, let's pray. Uh, let's pray that, uh, that we would hear God speaking to us this morning and ask for the Spirit to be, to be with us to be renewing us this morning too. Almighty God, we come before you in this time needing to hear your word. We pray that your spirit would be moving and present and active with the word as it goes forth. Helping us to understand. Bridging the gap between the words that we hear and the words in our, and, and then the, our, our own lives. This word is living and active. It is more powerful than a two-edged sword. It pierces down to the depths of, of joint and marrow, down to where soul meets body. Spirit, would you take this word then and use it uh, to pierce us deep. Use it as a scalpel um, to open us up, but not to leave us open, but to receive the balm of your grace and mercy as well, and to fashion us into people who know you, who love you, and rest upon you. We pray that the good news of Jesus Christ would shine forth here. We pray this in his name. Amen. Ruth chapter 1. Let me read, read the, this for us. This is the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech... The husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the the, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. uh, Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? 
No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. When you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if, any, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Amen. We are now in the Advent season, uh, beginning today, and we are now, at that we, also that we've finished Mark, we're beginning a new series in this time through the book of Ruth. Advent is a, ser- it's a, a season of waiting. It's a season of expectancy. It's a season of longing. It's a time in between the times, in between the two Advents of our Lord, in between His birth and His return. Uh, Jesus came into the world after an extended time of waiting. He was the light entering into the dark world. Yet we continue to wait. We continue to wait here for the full light of his glory to shine forth and to dispel all of the darkness. And that's why we light the candles here this morning. Uh, We light the, 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 the candle there expectantly awaiting the light to come. We do so remembering that he has come and that we are also still longing for his second advent, for his return. We wait And we sing songs of longing, songs like this morning, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Come, ransom captive Israel. It's a song of longing, of of expectant waiting. Now, we may think that waiting, or the the worst part about waiting is the time, right? But sometimes waiting can actually be quite delightful. Like many people right now are excited for Christmas, but not just for the Christmas day, But they're excited in this whole Christmas season, right? The month of December, or whenever you decide to start celebrating Christmas, the month of December is full of of activities, right? It's counting down the days. It's a happiness and a joy in the waiting, right? It's not just Christmas morning, but it's the, the Christmas parties that we end up going to. It's the caroling. It's all of these other things that we do, getting in the festive spirit. But what can make burden... What can make waiting a burden isn't the wait itself. What can make it difficult is the circumstances of waiting. Waiting that's filled with grief from times of bitterness. Be waiting that plays on our doubts. It can be waiting not with expectancy, but it can be waiting with fear. How's it going to turn out in the end? 
And waiting in hardship may also be difficult, though, too. When we rightly recognize the sovereignty of God, we recognize his providence over the events of our lives, but we don't recognize his character. And providence is easier to hold on to when life is going relatively well. But when providence, when God's providence takes a bitter turn, it's not so easy. God, who are you? God, are you against me in this time? But the scriptures affirm a God of sovereignty and promise, but also a God, or sorry, sovereignty and providence, but also a God of goodness and a God of grace. And the book of Ruth reveals how God works in his providence, even his providence in difficult and bitter times. The book of Ruth this morning here begins with his grace meeting two women who are in the midst of life's bitterness. And his providence, even in these bitter moments, doesn't mean that he was against them. And it doesn't mean that he is against you either. Because his grace, though, in all of this comes to both women. And this morning here, as we, as we begin our journey through Ruth, we are introduced to three of the four main characters in the story. We have two women who suffer despair, but two women whom God meets in his grace. We have Naomi. Though she doesn't recognize uh, God's grace coming to her in the form of Ruth. So we have Naomi, but we also have Ruth, though. Ruth, as she shows faithfulness to Naomi and faithfulness to God, as she begins to draw near to him in her own despair. Now, next week, we'll see our fourth main character, who's Boaz. But we can't forget the other one here in the whole story and that we see in this, in this passage this morning. That's the Lord God. He's a character in all of our stories, including this one here as he works in his providence. So as we get going, though, before we introduce the characters, as we see them, let's introduce the story. Because all stories have settings. And so what's the setting of Ruth? Well, it takes place, we read, first of all, in verse 1, it takes place in, in the era of the Judges. Uh, the book of Judges, which is right before Ruth. It's the same time. That's why it's placed right after. Uh, uh, probably, arguably the, the darkest time in the history of Israel. Where it says the repeated refrain over and over. Everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. It, is an, it was an era of apostasy, spiraling down into the lowest depths of depravity. Into really some even unspeakable ways. And like what happened so often in that period, those times of unfaithfulness there, there was famine that came upon the land. And we have here then a man named Elimelech, a man from Bethlehem. And it's in one of these periods of famine, and he leaves the land, and he decides to move his family, his wife Naomi, his two, his two sons, Malon and Kilion, and he says, we're going to go to Moab. We're going to wait this thing out in Moab. Now, Moab was an enemy of Israel. Moab was a nation that was actually formed from incest. You can read in, in Genesis 19 of Lot and his daughters. It was a nation that, was, that assailed Israel in their times of weakness in the wilderness. It was a nation that was named several times even as Israel's oppressors in the book of Judges. And this is where Elimelech decides to move his family to sojourn and to find refuge. This is clearly a decision that was made out of survival. But it was not a decision made out of faithfulness to the Lord, though. Elimelech, his name, means my God, or God is my king. Names uh, in, the, in the Old Testament oftentimes uh, have, have, have some, some sort of, of identity to this person. Elimelech says, his name says, every time he would meet someone, it would be like, hi, I'm Elimelech, God is my king. 
And so a guy like that, with a guy named like that, you would expect him to stay uh, in Israel, in Judah there, and you'd expect him to lead his, his neighbors in repentance. You'd expect him to trust in the Lord's decision. After all, he says God is his king. But there is an irony, though, with his name. Is God actually his king? He must have felt some sort of allure to Moab, a place that seemed to hold promise despite their history, despite being their enemy, despite, uh, despite, uh, living, uh, his, despite trying to live faithfully. Uh, this was not a faithful decision here. It was purely a pragmatic decision. It was one of those instances where the grass seems greener on the other side. Decisions are to be judged by faithfulness to God. They're not to be driven by pragmatism. And it probably to him seemed like a good idea at that time. One that was justified by survival. But is that what God calls us to do? I mean, after all, we can all find ways to justify almost any decision, right? But decisions are to be weighed by what God desires. By what pleases him. That's what it means to have him as our king. That's what it means to know him as provider. And if we're driven to pragmatics or, or even survival... What are we saying about God? Are we saying that he can't actually provide for us? Well, the same here, the same sort sorts of reasoning goes with, with their two sons taking Moabite wives. Um, marriage was a family decision at this time. There was no such thing as eloping. And that marriage would bind families together. Elimelech and Naomi, they were binding their family to the Moabite families there. And then... Elimelech and his family left Israel with a focus on their desires being met. Desires for a comfortable life. A comfortable life over a faithful life. So what happens when our comforts aren't met? What happens in this instance here when they're taken away? Well, let's begin to look at our three characters. First one is Naomi. And she has all this come upon her now and she has complaint in a bitter time. Because she loses everything. She loses her husband, Elimelech. She loses her two sons. And then that's not it, though. There's a devastating nature to her loss. It's not just losing her, her husband and her two sons. She's also losing her future in this time as well. Because both sets of her sons... Uh, as they're married to Orpah and Ruthla, they're, they're childless. They die without any children. And so what this means for Naomi then is that there's no one to take care of her now. She doesn't have a husband to take care of her and provide for her and protect her. She doesn't have any sons to do so. She doesn't have any grandchildren to, to take care of her. Her future, humanly speaking, is gone. She is widowed with no help and with no future. And she's left widowed in a foreign land, and so she decides to return to Israel. And it seemed like an appropriate time. Verse 6, it says that the Lord had visited them again and given them food. But on her way back, she attempts to send away Orpah and Naomi. Go away. Go build your own future back where you're from. I'm cursed. Don't you see I'm cursed? She believes herself to be cursed by God, and she doesn't want... Anything more to happen to them on her account. They've already lost their husbands. They don't have any children. It says, just go away from me too. I don't want anything more to happen to you. And then we begin to see her complaint that, ca- that happens uh, against God as she's talking to her daughter-in-laws 
as she gets back to her home in, in Bethlehem as she's talking with them. And it's not directly to God, but there are assumptions, though, from her conversations that, that he is against her. Because why else would this have happened? Verse 13, she says, It is bitter to me that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She gets back to Bethlehem in verse 20. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. He's testified against me. God's against me. What have I done wrong? And she changes her name in accordance with her, with her experience. Naomi, that name means pleasant. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Why would you call me pleasant? Why would you call me Naomi when such bitterness is upon me? It, it's almost like a mockery to me and to what I'm going through. What's important in all of this here is that not once does she doubt God's providence. This whole time, she fully acknowledges his hand has come upon her, or his hand in all that has come upon her. There's no sense here that God's providence is only when good things happen, which is why she therefore believes that he must be against her. The name that she uses to refer to God here reveals not, not, not only the covenant Lord of promise and goodness to his people, but it begins to change into the idea of an impersonal God. She begins by saying the Lord, calling him the Lord, the Lord, which is Yahweh. This is the covenant name of God to his people. This is a name of God that implied personal relationship with his people. But she begins to call him then later the Almighty, Shaddai in Hebrew, which emphasizes his sovereign and his providential nature without as much of the relationship. There's a, she's beginning to see a relational distance or she's perceiving a relational distance between her and God. Naomi is looking at God through her experience and coming to a conclusion of who he must be because bitter times have come upon her. She's saying there must be some sort of sin or guilt at the root of this. He has testified against me and he has brought all of this down upon me. His hand must be upon me for a reason. Therefore, my life is bitter. What hope is there if God is against me? But as she looks, though, at God through her experience, she only looks at him, though, through the pain. Verse 21, she says, I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. But is that so? Did the Lord bring her back totally empty? She experienced loss in Moab. There's no doubt about that. But when she comes back, though, is she empty? Because what about Ruth? What about Ruth who decided to stick with her? If God was sovereign over her in, in, in her loss, well, what about her gain in Ruth? Life hadn't gone the way that Naomi imagined, and that's part of her complaint. There is, she is upset, and there is bitterness for her because the desires that she had for her life didn't go according to how she planned for it. Why'd they go to Moab? Why'd they take Moabite wives? For security, to ensure security and to secure a future. All because, all despite God's desires in favor of her own. And despite all this here, God, though, was still good to Naomi. He stripped her of all that she took comfort in, and he gave her Ruth instead. God's goodness isn't determined by our personal desires being met or unmet. Because who is the God that we're dealing with? We're dealing with a transcendent God. 
A God who can't be judged by our circumstances. His transcendent goodness and his wisdom is far above our understanding. He is sovereign. He is providential. And his providence is good. And yet goodness from a transcendent God is also good in ways that we may not always understand or see. And admittedly sometimes even want. We can talk about and we can believe about God's goodness and his providence in ways that perhaps reveals where a prosperity gospel has subtly crept into our thinking. Now, when I say prosperity gospel, I'm referring to the idea that God's will, or, or a false idea that God's will is to only give us good things on this earth, and that if you only believe and obey, then goodness will come upon you. And it's subtle here that in, in all of this, that it works in subtle ways. Sometimes we think that if something doesn't work out the way that we wanted or there's a dismaying situation. How many times have we, have we heard the words? Or how many times have we said the words? Well, you know, God has something better for you right now. God has a plan. It can be subtle sometimes here. But who's this at the center of this sort of thinking, right? What sort of plan are we talking about? Are we talking about a plan that we want for our lives? Or are we talking about a, a plan and what God's will is for us? What is better Is it our own comforts and pleasures and desires, the ways that we think that our life should be? Or what is better? Is it actually having God? Is it learning to appreciate and love him more? In fact, sometimes even being humbled in order to appreciate and love and rest upon this God more. Do we look to him only for comfort and prosperity? Or do we look to God because we want God himself? Do we want an appetite for him, for who he is? See, if we're only looking for ourselves and for our own earthly pleasures or desires, who is at the center of that sort of thinking? Is it God? Or is it us? What else, though, too? What else is in the middle? What about our personal desires? But the thing is, this, stuff, this kind of stuff goes down smooth. It's like candy. Right? Candy's full of sugar, and it tastes good. But in the times, though, when, 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 when you're going through a rough day, Just eating candy all day, is that going to get you through? Of course not. It may taste sweet in that moment. It may even give you a little bit of a boost there. But, you know, that's not going to keep you going when life gets tough. A diet of that is unhealthy. It's not actually going to keep you from getting sick. It will weaken your immune system. So how you view God is how you view sufferings and bitter instances of his providence that when they come upon you. If his goodness is seen by good things happening to me, then why am I suffering? What have I done? But if his goodness, though, is seen by giving us himself, even changing our desires and seeing him as the highest good, then the question for us to ask is, what is he up to in my suffering? How is he drawing near to me in my suffering? What's needed to look at at is God in his transcendence. And to trust him to those bitter times. Now, Naomi's not the only one who goes through difficulties. We also have our second character, Ruth. Ruth as well. And faith and Ruth, though, as a foil, demonstrates faithfulness and trust in the bitter times that come upon her. Ruth is a foil for Naomi in the story. Because she too suffers devastation. She too suffers loss, a loss of her husband. She doesn't have any kids either now. Right? Naomi may not have grandkids. Well, it means she doesn't have kids. But Ruth, though, does the opposite. She clings to Naomi. She sticks with her. 
she will not leave and she proves her loyalty. That, he's, that she bound, binds herself to her and will not leave Naomi in this loss, even to the point of aligning herself with Naomi's God, the Lord Yahweh, the Lord God. She follows Naomi back to Israel and she takes on the identification of the God of Israel. What you see in 16 and 17. Where you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. She's looking here. She's identifying herself. She's taking on the God who in his providence also brought loss to her. But her as a foreigner, her as a Moabite woman, her as a stranger to this God. But Ruth here demonstrates a trust in the Lord, even though she, had, she also experienced devastation. But in her desperation, she sticks with Naomi and she leans in upon the Lord. And of all people to do this, she is the most unexpected to do so. She says, I'm sticking with you, mother-in-law, and we're going to go back to Israel. We're going to go together. We're going to look to the Lord, your God. No, we're going to look to the Lord, our God. This foreign Moabite woman doing this, like, who by birth she would have been against Israel and against God. But perhaps, though, her foreignness allowed her to see the goodness of God, the goodness of being in a covenant relationship with the God of Israel in ways that perhaps Naomi and Elimelech wouldn't have been able to. Maybe by following along with her, she was able to see that, you know what, this, my native gods here in Moab aren't like the Lord Yahweh, the one that you follow after. And perhaps there was something in the Lord that she saw that, that Naomi and Elimelech didn't. Maybe there was a freshness that she saw amid their overacquaintance. And that's true sometimes, isn't it? There are sometimes when outsiders to God are brought near by Jesus and they're overwhelmed with joy and perhaps sometimes in ways that those who have grown dull uh, because they've been with God for a long time and have lost the wonder, maybe it's they have a wonder that has been lost in them and it is refreshing to see when someone can come in now and understand with, with newness and fresh eyes. But we have our third character too that we can't forget, and that's God. God is in the midst of his too. God and his covenant faithfulness that we see revealed in Ruth. Ruth clings to Naomi as an example of covenant faithfulness. What does it look like? It looks like the way that Ruth acts here. That's a theme throughout the Old Testament. We have covenant and then we have faithfulness. Faithfulness to that covenant. So covenant, what is that? Well, it's an oath that is binding uh, two or more parties and it's sealed together and where there is with an expected obedience to uphold their agreements. And people are sealed in covenants. Individuals are sealed and brought together into covenants. There's an agreement that they make to remain committed with one another. And so we have covenant, but then there's also, on the other hand, covenant faithfulness as well. Upholding the demands, upholding the obligations, remaining true to them. When you see in the Old Testament the phrase steadfast love, that's, a, that's our English translation of this idea of covenant faithfulness. Ruth clinging to Naomi is a picture of covenant faithfulness. When she says, when it says in, in, in a verse 14 that Ruth clung to her, that word cling, it's a covenantal word. 
It's the same word that's, that's used in Genesis 2.24 as God brings Adam and Eve together for the first time in a covenant of marriage. It's not this, this isn't just mere obligation. This is actually coming from the heart. It's a love from the heart. She is steadfast in remaining with Ruth, or sorry, with Naomi. And she pledges to her and shows Naomi kindness and loyalty, no matter the situation. And Ruth was even willing to endure her own widowhood for, for Naomi's sake. She put aside her own security. She put aside her own aspirations of rebuilding a family. And she forfeits her own personal happiness in favor of another who she's in covenant with, in favor of covenant faithfulness. And this is the ideal for people who are bound together in covenant. This is how covenantal people think. It's how covenantal people act. It's how people live together in covenant. Being in covenant changes you. Because you, re- you realize that you're not your own. You're bound to another. You're bound to another. And so you think about the others who are involved in covenant. You think about the commitment that you have made with them, that they've made with you. You, co- you think about the, the covenant that binds you all together. And when we think about covenant relationships, what's the first one that most of us probably think of? Marriage, right? Marriage is a covenantal relationship. And this sort of covenantal faithfulness here that we see in Ruth, this this self-sacrifice of her own aspirations, this this love, this loyalty, this clinging to one another, that's that's, that's the ideal for marriage, for the marriage covenant. But that's not the only covenant, though, too, that we can think of. There's also the covenant community of God. God takes people and he binds them together. People who are bound in covenant together with the Lord, they're bound together through Jesus Christ by the Spirit. And so we look at Ruth's covenantal faithfulness, and that example is also how we, as God's people, with each other, live covenantally with one another. Loyalty, self-sacrifice, putting aside our own desires for the sake of others. But we also think, too, about the covenant relationship that we have with God. God is a covenant God. What does this reveal about God? What does Ruth and her covenant faithfulness reveal about God? Well, we have to remember the triune God is a covenant God. He has a relational character that is tied to his triune being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from, even, from eternity past, even before creation. God himself and Father, Son, and Spirit had made a covenant with one another to redeem for their glory and for their delight of people. There's covenant that's at the very aspect of God. And he reveals himself to his people and he binds himself to his people through means of making covenants. He makes promises, commitments, oaths. He also then, just like Ruth, just like is expected for people who are in covenants, he exhibits covenantal faithfulness. And Ruth's exemplary covenant faithfulness is a shadow of the covenant faithfulness of the triune God and his complete, his perfect faithfulness in his, or to his covenant with his people. That beautiful statement in verse 16 that Ruth makes, your people shall be my people and your God my God. That echoes God's covenantal words that he gave to Israel in Exodus 6-7. Her words and her actions to Naomi, they're an earthly ideal of God's archetype of how he acts in his covenantal character. 
Hers is a shadow of God's. God's is like Ruth's, but it's also greater than Ruth's. God binds himself to us through his word. He binds himself to us through the oaths that he makes. He binds himself to his people and he exhibits a commitment to that oath. He exhibits a loyalty to the pledge that he made and a loyalty, therefore, to his people. So the triune God's covenant faithfulness, where do we see it most of all? We see it in the person of Jesus. It's where God was willing to even give himself, that he was willing to give himself as the son of God to provide the promised blessing and redemption to us. Jesus is the one who brings us into covenant relationship, into covenant fellowship. He is the symbol of the Father's covenant faithfulness to us. For what more could he do? What more could he give us? How more could he prove his love, his steadfast love, his covenantal character to us than by giving us his very own son who took flesh and blood for us, who walked among us, who lived in covenantal faithfulness to the Father for us who bled and died, who rose again for us. Jesus is the covenant faithfulness of God embodied to us. His blood of the covenant which was poured out for us. His person, his work as a mediator to bring together into covenant relationship God and humanity. His covenantal faithfulness in the form of his obedience that he lived, given to us then, His sticking with us and his staying with us and loyalty, not because we deserve it, but simply because of the fact that he promised to and he bound himself to an oath. And that's what we need. That's what we need to hear. That's what all of us need to, to remember and to see when the providence of God appears bitter. We need to remember then his covenantal faithfulness, though, to us also in Jesus. Is God good? Yes. Is God good even in my troubles? Yes. A resounding yes because of Jesus Christ. Is he against me? Is his hand heavy upon me? Am I cursed? No, not if you're in Christ. Why? Because in Jesus, his covenant to you, his loyalty to you, his pledge to you, his promise to you is sealed with an oath, an irrevocable oath the blood of the covenant of his son. If this God is your covenant, Lord, then how could he be anything but good to you, but truly good to you, good as a loving father to you? But goodness is more than our earthly desires met. Goodness is more than just our simple comforts right now. Not if we're dealing with, it has to be more than that if we're dealing with a transcendent God. We're talking about his trustworthy character, And because he's given Jesus to you, because he's given you his son, then there's nothing that can separate you from his love. And his will for you can only be good to you. Good as he defines it. With himself as the highest good. And good that conforms us to him. Advent is a time of waiting. Waiting's long. Waiting can be filled with grief. Waiting can be scary when it's dark. Yet we wait, though, for God's covenant promise. We wait for Jesus Christ himself. Jesus' first advent is why we wait longingly then for his second. It's why we wait expectantly and why we wait with hope, despite those times that we might feel of bitter providence. 
And while we wait, though, we're given the sign of God's covenant faithfulness to us. We're given the sign of a bread or bread. We're given the sign of a cup. The blood of the, the covenant that was poured out for us. We're given these signs here to encourage us as we receive that promise again of his covenantal pledge to us. We're given those signs again so that he will renew us in faith yet again. Let's pray. Lord, you are sovereign over all things. But yet we don't just call you God Almighty. We call you Yahweh. We call you Lord. We call you as the steadfast, loving God. We call you Father because you have given us Christ in your spirit. And though we may not always know why things are happening to us in certain ways, we may not always be able to recognize the causes of certain things that happen in our lives or the lives of loved ones or or other events in other places. But we can look with confidence and look and rest in you knowing that you are good, that you will provide because you have given us all that we need. You've given us Jesus. So restore our hope. Restore the hope for those who this morning here are doubting. Restore the hope for those who are grieving. And Lord, bring their eyes to see you and all of your covenant faithfulness to us. Provide Provide us yet again here with those signs that we see in the supper. And help prepare our hearts as we come to the table to be renewed by you once again and by your promise. In Jesus' name, amen.